0: You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome back to another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. The following episode was originally recorded as part of our Access 2020 event and features one of our vice presidents Garth Martin leading a
1: discussion with two active corporate development professionals.
2: Thanks everyone for joining us today. We're really excited to jump on the phone, talk through some of what we think are interesting topics. Hope you all do as well. This panel is Strategic M&A Finding the Right Fit. So, as we were thinking about different topics to go through and, and to discuss, there's Always in every transaction, there's always a lot of financial components and very strategic and data-driven points, but there's also a lot of other qualitative points with a transaction. So today, we're really going to spend a lot of time talking through how culture can play into some of these transactions, some of the other strategic aspects of a transaction. So this is Garth Martin. I'm with the Seven Mile team. I'm president with Seven Mile. I've gotten with, with me two individuals. So Scott Kaplan from Mighty High and S4 Capital. I'll let him give a good intro on himself in a second. And then Blake Clifton from the Cognizant team and their corporate development group. So we are really excited to, to jump in here. Really thankful for these two guys to, to spend a few minutes and, and just walk through how they think about transactions, walk through some different stories. We'll go through a number of different things, but we'll also open it up for questions at the end. And I think with that, I'll kick it over to Scott to start us off with introductions, and then we'll kick it to Blake. So, Scott. Hey, Garth.
3: Hi, everybody. My name is Scott Kaplan, and I'm the Director of Corporate Development, at S4 Capital. I oversee our research, diligence, and eventual integration of our mergers across our global practice. And, Garth, it makes sense to go a little bit in the S4 right now. Just yeah. To- yeah,
2: I think a background would be, would be really yeah. helpful. So if you're not familiar with
3: S4, we're a digital marketing services firm providing data, media, and creative services on global platforms to global enterprise brands. We have about 3,000 people in over 20 countries, and our three pillars are driven by our first two mergers, uh, MightyHive and media Monks. Our mantra was coined by our founder, Martin Sorrel, faster, better, cheaper. And for us, what that means is using media, data, and creative to provide better content at scale more efficiently. Two years in, we're still small, but we're growing. We're about $400 million in revenue, and about half of our clients are large tech companies, the Googles, Adobes, Facebooks, Amazons of the world. In addition to being our clients, we also partner with them on their enterprise marketing platforms to help our clients. So while some of our mergers may be larger, like the Mighty Hive, Media Monks, and Firewoods, a lot of our mergers tend to be smaller, scrappier startups, organizations that are building something different, new, and we wanna tap into that entrepreneurial spirit.
1: Great, thanks Scott. Yeah. Hey, Blake Clifton with Cognizant. It's a publicly traded global systems integrator focused on outsourced IT and digital transformation. And with our M&A very much focused on growing in our strategic battlefields. And we've done to date seven acquisitions in those Those sectors primarily being digital engineering or software development, cloud, infrastructure and software as a service providers, data, and IoT. Great. Thanks, Blake. To
2: kick us off, COVID is definitely something that's on everyone's mind, how it's impacting transactions, how it's influencing, how how people think about deals, execute on transactions. It's something that we're going to put a little bit on the back burner. I know everyone's, everyone's talking about it. A lot, spending a lot of time and thought on that topic. So we'll maybe sprinkle in some some commentary around COVID stories, but we'll keep that a little bit on the back burner. So by way of agenda, we're going to jump into really the first topic that we had, which is really talking about culture. Both Scott and Blake work at organizations where they're services-based organizations, they're people-based organizations. Your assets are are your people. They're walking in and out of the door every single day. When you go into a transaction, and I'll I'll kick it over to to Scott for the the first one. But culture is really it's it's a hard thing to wrap your arms around. It's it's something that it's not really tangible. It's it's hard to really understand, especially if a, a group is in an M and A process where you're only having a few interactions with the team. Um, it's hard to really sift out if there's a cultural alignment between two organizations. So maybe just spend a few minutes. How do you and S4 Mighty Hive, how do you think about culture? How does it play into a lot of your transactions? If we can start there.
3: Of course. So culture is, is always top of mind whenever we meet with any company. And particularly for S4, it's really important for us because two years ago, S4 was just a public listed name on the London Stock Exchange. There wasn't any operations. There wasn't much of a business we've been founded through the merging of our operations first with mighty hive and Media Monks, and since then the 15 deals we've done to date so really as soon as we joined s4 and, and i came from the mighty hive side of the house five years ago i served as the chief of staff and when we did our own merger we became the operative arm of s4 so we were responsible for figuring out what is our new culture and so since we started at s4 we've really been answering this question of like how do we maintain culture alignment, as we expand into new geographies and new capabilities with new entrepreneurs. And the way we've tried to structure this, you know, outside of the initial getting to know the founders, understanding ambitions and goals, and making sure that alignment is there, is trying to put a framework around how to manage different growth across different practices of our company. So what we've implemented is a five C's framework, if you're familiar with this, where we break out our business into five C's, country capability, client's capacity and categories. And usually whenever we're looking for a merger, a company will fall into one of these categories. And when we get to know this team, this executive managers and what their ambitions are, we're looking for a team to be the drivers of one of these five C's to help us go deeper into a region, expand into new capability, grow our capacity in an existing practice or go deeper in a category that's uh, an industry vertical, autos, pharma, et cetera or a client, a particular client that we wanna have a deeper relationship. As I mentioned, many of our clients are our top tech brands. Not only we work on these platforms, but we do a lot of the marketing services for them from digital content production to the actual delivery of this media. So if we can find a business team, an entrepreneur who's excelling in a particular practice in a region, we wanna learn from them. And we want to really take their lead on how S4 expands this practice, not just in a region, But globally. So, throughout most of our mergers, when we find the experts in a particular capacity, our conversations are not only around, okay, how can we make sure to achieve the immediate growth and opportunities available, but how are we going to be winning the next three, five, 10 years in your capacity? How can we scale your expertise in Buenos Aires to a global level or make our whole company Amazon experts? So, making sure that entrepreneurs have this spirit is really important. And then, structurally, we want to make sure we incent them. That's why at S4, our deals, we try to keep them very straightforward, avoiding some of the earnouts of uh, other suitors in the space of three to five years, but really just focus on integrating immediately, trying to, to close out the financial year end, and then making sure that we can build, start building our processes together and actually start achieving on our agreed KPIs. So not worrying about, all right, how can we hit an artificial EBITDA number, but actually merge our business together. And when we do that is by having our deals be about 50% cash, 50% equity. That way the entrepreneurs can take some cash off the table. They've been investing in their business. They've been replowing these profits in their company. They need to de-risk a little bit, but also we wanna make sure they're incentive for the ride. We're not looking for teams that are looking to cash out and maybe sell the operations to somebody else to take over. No, we need people to buckle up and help us drive this rocket ship. So that's why by having all of our mergers with the same equity, business units are incentive to work horizontally and collaborate with somebody who's outside of their capability or outside of the region if there's a business need or a client demanding it. So I think this is combination, Garth, of yes, making sure philosophically we're aligned on what we're looking for in, in growth and, and what our plans for world domination are, but incentive these entrepreneurs and, and making sure that they are the right folks to drive this practice, not just for their own growth, but across S4 as a whole.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. Those are some, some really good points. Maybe just before we jump over to to Blake, we'll we'll be curious to, you sat on the other side of the table, going through the, the acquisition, what was important, important about culture, as you were thinking about the strategic fit, or what was, what was your perspective coming from the other side of the equation?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I was really fortunate to be in the room with all the companies we met with and to hear the different visions that they're painting. Everything from private equity shops to to key strategics in our space. And that gamut, the spectrum ranges from maintaining independence, autonomy, and kind of going with the existing team or partnering up to get more access, but maybe you lose some control of the company. So for us at S4, what what really gravitate to us and what we've been able to actually experience and, and drive forward is that that buy-in mentality. We wanted to make sure that, that wherever we went, there was going to be opportunities for our people to scale their careers. I'm sure a lot of founders have experienced this when you've developed your organization, your operation, maybe got a couple of years or, or good clients in your belt. The team starts to get more ambitious as they should and to make sure you give them runway, ways to grow their career and get more experiences was paramount for our growth and, and success as an organization to retain this talent. And so when we met with Desk4, and our partners at Media Monks, it was really clear to us that while the opportunity was there, the expectation was on us to build that plan and, and to build that plan to put our people in place to actually execute against that. And so being able to, I think, perpetuate that and continue that across other practices is, is something that from my experience was so important for me when we're on the other side of the table and evaluate different options we can go. Yes, there are always more valuable options or, or larger companies, but really understanding what's the right fit for not the leadership team but the staff and making sure that they're going to have successful futures it was one of the key reasons we chose this for and what we try to convey and build the plans with the teams we're meeting with. Again, we can't just make up the the roles and opportunities that are going to sound exciting to the folks that the comes to meet with. We need to understand what their goals are and what they're looking for and what's important in their careers. And I think having those conversations are some of the the most fun ones I get to have in my role because I've been having them for from even before I started doing this at S4 on the other side of the table.
2: Yeah, uh, that, that's great. I uh, really appreciate that. Those are some great responses. Blake, any comments you, you'd like to add and maybe dive into to how Cognizant thinks about culture and how you try and sift that out in some of your early conversations?
1: Sure. Very similar to Scott. When we're looking at an acquisition, we're looking to expand product and offering or a, a client channel or vertical, right? And Within that, based on the type of acquisition we're making, it defines an archetype for that acquisition. Whether it be a tuck in that folds into a larger established group is very different from something that's adjacent, meaning maybe we have a strategy across a campaign and we've got A and C, but we don't have B. And so B would be an adjacent, it's not a tuck in to C and A, but it helps the platform across. And then there's a full platform play, which is almost a a standalone entity, not from a governance or corporate standpoint, but from a product and and offering and perhaps client channel standpoint. So with each of those, it brings about different approaches and thoughts around culture based on what you're bringing into the ultimate entity with which these people are going to have the closest contact. And that's what makes culture is people. And so that's how, why you have to think about it within the archetypes and who they're going to be interacting with, how we're going to put them onto the Cognizant platform. What I say is the Cognizant doesn't buy companies to grow them at the same rate that they were growing at. We buy them to grow much faster. And so the people that are going to enable that, our, our client partners, our sales teams, they are interacting with each of those acquisition archetypes differently. And those are things that we have to take into consideration for each deal. Another thing, when I break down culture, it comes down to strategic and then what happens in the hallways or today, the virtual hallways, which we're all dealing with and makes things even harder to maintain a, maintain a culture, let alone integrate two cultures into one another, which by definition are never the same. And how far apart they are makes that you know more or less challenging but the bottom line is you've got different virtual hallways right now on the strategic approach cognizant being driven by our ceo very clearly client centric so if it's not client centric there's a couple things that we will sniff out that are just basically non starters and they're more important than valuation if if you're not going to be client centric then it's not going to fit in our overall culture because it's not fitting with our strategy The strategy alignment has to be there. And the senior that's what we get from the the senior leadership teams. Same for the motivation for growth. We're very aggressive in our growth targets and what we want to achieve. And people that join us are excited about that. And again, they see the opportunity to take something that they've done a tremendous job with as an entrepreneur and take into a place of a certain growth where they say, wow, I can do even that much more if I have some of those tools that you're bringing to the table. Those are some of the things that, that just further excite the blend in culture that we provide. The strategy, again, a little easier to sniff out at the beginning and not to jump the gun on your COVID approach. The hallways, a little more challenging, basically, yeah. especially now.
2: Yeah, no, it definitely changes a, a lot of the, the dynamic when you're having a lot of these conversations via Zoom calls rather than in-person meetings or getting to maybe I have a dinner with someone, definitely changed things. Before we we transition to an adjacent topic, do either of you have any like really positive stories of, of where there was really strong cultural alignment in the acquisition you made and six months, 12 months down the road, you're like, wow, this has really worked out. There's just, teams are really meshing. We're really thankful we did that transaction and maybe you didn't even realize it would, would work out as well
1: as it did. Any quick stories? I could tell you signs of it. Uh, first to start and then maybe Scott can fill in with the, you know, the back end of an actual example. The signs of it, again, start with the strategy and being open with that from the start and not just the strategy that we're both trying to achieve as a combined entity, but the willingness to be open with not just the great things the selling company is going to do, but ironically, it's being open with some of the challenges they face. When they're open with the challenges, it's a leading indicator that they're gonna be open and trying to solve those challenges and not trying to hide them or or make it look like there's something they're not because we're, we're doing a ton of work during these transactions even before closing, at least internally. And then, you know, to set a path for right upon closing, how we charge the hill. If there's a hidden boulder in that hill, that doesn't help anybody. So those that are upfront about what the challenges might be when we do come together, it makes that cultural combination that much easier because doing that sets the stage or prevents the stage from being set as an us versus them. And that is the flip side of when you start feeling an us versus them or a stage that's going to be set for the company being brought on where that could ever be the case, you're going to run into challenges makes a lot of sense.
3: Scott, yeah. did you I gar- gar- uh, completely agree, Blake. That that communication, I'm not just talking about the rosy projections and how great things are going to be, but here's where we have no idea what's going on. Or here, here is a legit problem we have, that it's not something that, that we can't overcome, but we, we need some help figuring this out. I think it's two ways as well. When, when we're talking about growing our practices, and needing to bulk up or go in depth in a new area, that's a lot of times why we're having this conversation. So for us on the buyer side, admitting where, for us as a strategic like S4, where our gaping holes are too. A specific example I do have, over the past 18 months, S4 has done several mergers in analytics, sites analytics, GA360 space. And what's been so fun is this has almost been like a snowball effect, where as soon as we get one partner, We're able to gain their insights, learn from or address what they've seen in their space and market. Specifically, I'm thinking of Russell Sutton from the Conversion Works team. This is one of our first mergers out of UK, 30-person GA shop. When he joined us, he went from being the running a brilliant 30-person analytics consultancy out of the UK to becoming the leader of Mighty Hive and S4's data practice across Europe and effectively being in charge of client management and addressing our strategic scale, not just in Europe, but globally. And so when Russell joined, then we started having conversations about, okay, we have a base in Europe, but what about APAC? What about Latin America? And how can we increase our capacity in our US market? That led to our next acquisitions, Digidot out of Latin America and Lens 10 out of Sydney. And so now we went from having these disparate best in class in different regions to a global network of respective leaders in their key markets that can drive that local change. But when there is a global opportunity or a client that demands that local expertise at a global level, we can tap into these same entrepreneurs and they already know each other. And so that makes my job a lot easier from just needing that to figure out how are we are going to serve this capacity to actually seeing this, these different entrepreneurs step up to deliver this at, at a global level. And so I think That's an example of not only being vulnerable where our needs were, we had to have a team to help drive this global change. But we couldn't do that until we had properly merged and integrated with the core team of Conversion Works to make sure that we had that nucleus to build off of. And I think one of the
1: themes you were hitting on, Scott, is when the companies you're bringing in build upon what's there. And when they do more with what you've already got than they could have, By themselves, basically. And we see the success start to build when the leaders of these acquired companies begin taking on roles outside of what they, the company that they were acquired for. And I think you had an example of that, and we've got several. And when that starts happening, that whole force comes with them. And we bought a company in 2018, and it was more of a platform type play, anyway, ATG, which is a configured price quote. or implementer for Salesforce, excuse me. It was wildly successful because we were able, again, to take what they were doing with their growth, apply some more reach into our Global 2000 and extend their growth profile. And then earlier this year, we're able to acquire a company that they knew from their culture, frankly, they knew them before, and it was immediate, tuck-in, almost seamless, and now those leaders are going on to do bigger and better things. And so that's, that's what you're starting to look for is when the acquired company starts to leverage the platform and do things that they couldn't do on their own and go beyond the scope
3: of what the initial content was in the acquisition. Yeah, and, that, and that's the exact note on looking for teams that are the leaders of a space who are people that other people wanna work with. Those are the exact types of companies. And I think reputation we, we hope to find in a lot of our, a lot of our mergers.
2: Sure. Yeah, those are great, great examples. Appreciate you, you both walking through through those. So to to transition to another topic, I, I had mentioned this at the at the beginning of the conversation. So you both work at, at services based organizations. Talent is incredibly important. We touched on this a lot in the beginning part of the session and throughout some of those examples. But through any of these acquisitions that you're making, talent is key, and you need to make sure that. People are retained and feel at home. Blake, I'll kick it over to you. So, Cognizant, just from a people perspective, is a very large organization. How do you ensure, what are some of the steps you take, whether it's the business unit leaders or your corporate development group, to really ensure that talent feels at home? A transaction is a big thing. It can be disruptive. There can be some tension. How do you think about talent retention and and making sure that an acquired company feels at home, feels comfortable? after you've sensed that there will be a cultural alignment how do you ensure that there isn't
1: yeah it's a huge focus for us for sure what we do is kind of a multi-fold approach in that we have people that we align with the business on integration fronts on go-to-market fronts and then from a business integration front and those People have experience with Cognizant. They, when I mean, we're a big organization, it can be a little tough to navigate in your first days. And so, aligning them with experienced people that know how to get answers to what they need is very, very important. Making people feel comfortable in what is immediately unknown. A lot of these acquisitions get announced, and many of the employees did not know they were coming, varying degrees, obviously. And so a lot of focus for us is put into that communication planning and what we do on day one. And We have a shot clock from day one through to the first year, depending on the acquisition. But making sure that our communications are tight and that they have an outlet, that they have someone to call. That's important. And that's across the board. On the leadership front of them, we do deals with our our deal leads being the point people on structuring, negotiating, usually the first person to meet. company, they get very close to the business unit as well. And one thing we learned and adjusted a bit was that those deal leads would close the deal and they would stay in the the execution front. We've now got a process where that deal lead stays on what we call a steering committee that has monthly calls. And the reason for that is institutional knowledge bridge and making sure that CEO who or CFO or whoever had a great relationship with that deal lead realizes that we're all still there across this whole path together. So that's important. And then again, aligning people with legacy, cognizant knowledge, cognizant directional skills, right? From a, from a, how do you get from here if I need IT support or if I want to call on this client, where would I find the person who's responsible for that relationship some of them sound simple, but they're not in the aggregate. They're very challenging to get right. And that's why we devote a, a big team toward doing that. And it's the business, it's the corporate functions, and it's the go-to-market. That's great. Scott,
2: Any anything to add on the S4 Mighty Half side?
1: Yeah.
3: Again, like communication is so key. Not, not Not to repeat everything Blake said, but every deal... You know, it's one of those unfortunate things where, for us, we, we've been working on this for maybe six months, excited about it, planning about it, having this vision of how everything's gonna work, and then we announce it, and people are like, "What the hell's an S four? Or who are these people? <laughs> like, what's gonna happen?" The, the inevitable questions happen, and so, how can we effectively communicate, like what's not gonna change, what to expect, and and when to expect this information to come out? Because communications, sending all FT emails, is only so effective. That you have to find other channels to be effective. And like Blake said, make sure the information is available. So a lot of times the little things do matter, having the resources, getting everyone on Slack, sending the welcome emails, having the all hands. But but really it is communicating, I think, with the leadership team of what works for their company. We, we wanna communicate and engage and educate, but most importantly, keep the promises and expectations we made at the deal process and begin to share this with the rest of the team. But we don't, we wanna go at their own pace. They know their folks, better than anybody. And the last thing you want to do is disrupt things. Like you said at the start of this, Garth, services are people, businesses, and we want to keep the people very happy. And so that's where having sessions to explain what we do, have other people from other mergers come and talk. So it's not just Scott from Corp Dev saying it, but it's other entrepreneurs who were in this process six months, a year, two years ago. And then through that education, it is little things like explaining what does being horizontally organized mean? and actually demonstrating this to make sure the executives of the other companies are accessible, that the leaders know that the S4 board meets daily and that they can tap in to their practice for 5C leads whenever they need to. And one of the more fun things is that uh, Sir Martin sends his weekly email out to, to 3,000 people around the globe, giving his pretty direct and honest summations of the business state of affairs. And I think this these things, if they're not conversation fodder, it is how we start to build a culture that has a company of a hundred different cultures.
2: Those are all really good, good points. I appreciate you both, both sharing. So we've got roughly 30 minutes. We'll probably save the last roughly 15 minutes for questions. So there is a, a feature that you can drop in many questions. That I saw someone had submitted a, a question. We'll probably wait until roughly 2.15 Eastern time to, to start addressing some of those. Last question for the panelists that I'll pose and then we'll switch over to audience questions and we can, we can follow up by email if we, we don't get to address any, Scott, you mentioned this a little bit in in the beginning, if you're on the other side of the table or any, any words of advice to some of these parties, maybe there's some sellers dialed in that, you know, any, any points of commentary around Here's, you know, maybe something I would have thought about differently. Here's maybe something not to be fearful of, even though it seems daunting in a deal process. Any words of advice you would give to, to future or sellers that are going through a process right now? Yeah, I think
3: one of the questions I wish I asked more and I do enjoy when, when it comes up is more of a direct. So why you? Why, like this is a great pitch and, and I understand everything you talked about, but but really, why? like what's what's the difference here? Because there's always options, like we said, higher valuations, more access to capital, maybe greater breadth of operations. but it's that that calculus of all of it where maybe as the the seller, you have your ideas of what you're looking for. But a lot of times I think it's up to the buyer to, to almost paint a vision that maybe the sellers don't see or an opportunity that just because of their focus in a space, in a category with certain clients, they have not thought maybe a bigger picture. An example of this is, is one of our recent transactions with Bright Blue. This is, they're an MMM mixed media modeling consulting firm out of the UK. And for us, it was clear that they help us address the eventual question of what happens after the death of the cookie. But really it was an investment in our data practice of the future where we don't know what's gonna happen like in this industry, And we don't know the direction and what tools we're going to need, but we do know we're going to need smart people to help address that. And that was a no-brainer for us to see in bright blue. And to see this operative team that for 10 years has been so focused on commercialization and scale and winning new business, that sometimes this process is a way to reevaluate and take that step back of, okay, well, we went in with the initial thesis. We've gotten this feedback from initial meetings. What are we really going for here? And what are these other companies or buyers really offering to achieve that? And, and do any of them have maybe a different idea that we haven't considered? And it was from those types of questions that we were able to work with the Bright Blue team and kind of paint a different picture and have a different conversation than any other firms they were meeting with. And, and eventually one that excited them enough to, to choose us in their own process. So I think maybe, yeah, not getting off the immediate the script and the fundamental areas that make sense of any transaction or dealer partnership and kind of asking more of those outside questions of what's really different about this opportunity and your team.
2: Yeah. It's a great, great example. Blake, anything you would would add?
1: It goes back a bit to what I started with on the openness and how you can tell if a transaction is going to be successful by both sides being willing to put their dirty laundry, so to speak, on the table. And not that those are always bad things, it's just here's a deficit and what we're both going to encounter together and let's put our heads together and attack that jointly. If you've got that sort of approach to it, I think you'll have all your questions answered. There won't be that many because you will be willing to put it all on the table. One thing though, to help do that is just like a buyer does customer calls, Ask to speak to a previous CEO of an acquired company that's been on the platform for a year or two. Do your own customer calls and see if they're telling you the same thing that that the seller is on what they expected, what they were told, and what happened.
2: Definitely some great advice. So I think just given the time, we can transition over to some of the audience questions. We've got a couple that have trickled in. So feel free to, to. Submit questions. We'll, we'll start going through over the next few minutes and see what we can address. So the first one is, can you offer any advice or examples on handling late deal stage jitters or retrade? I'm not sure either one of you who, who would like to try and jump into that one and we we're just talking about sellers and, and providing some advice there. so maybe any examples in relation to some late stage maybe just deal stress and some situations that maybe good outcomes or way, ways to handle that, things like that.
1: Yeah, I think retrade is a, you know, sort of a dirty word, right? So I pinpoint what is really happening. Is it a retrade where they told you and you
0: truly
1: feel this wasn't in it at all? They knew they were going to do this the whole thing with, but ask the question, you know, where did this come from? And let's be open on both sides. Is this a risk you've actually found? If so, share with me what exactly you found and thus why you need to change the deal to compensate or handle this risk. Often when you put it on the table like that, There may be things that you as a seller know about that perceived risk that the buyer doesn't and just wasn't able to unearth. And that's when the open dialogue starts to say, oh, okay, well, we didn't know we could do this. That might soften our position or change it. So you don't feel it's a retrade, but it's more of a balancing of something that truly came up in diligence. But if those are coming up, my suggestion is for both sides to be open on where they really came from and share the the calculations or the background versus just putting something out there without someone understanding the context. Scott, Scott, anything?
3: So outside of just, you know, sometimes like lots of things come to light or final decisions come up, stress happens. If it's finance, it's not always about maintaining a certain number. A lot of times when we're looking at growth companies, they are smaller in nature, so they're more susceptible to, to some hits than others. And so- Given that we're looking in growth situations, just making sure you can articulate, all right, well, what's the plan to grow through this, even if there has been a speed bump? But I think kind of addressing the question more broadly, late deal jitters, expectations are changing at a fundamental level. And so I think early on in the process, we're constantly asking, well, what is an ideal state? What is best case scenario here? What are we really looking for? These types of questions and answers, when information changes or there is stress, I think falling back on these answers really do help, whether it is expanding or expanding internationally, new capabilities, opportunities for staff. Different partners have different solutions to these goals. And so when you are kind of whittling down the options or in a decision time, remembering what are the fundamental things we're prioritizing? Because at the end, there's a lot of noise you can kind of forget what the focus initially was. And I think this isn't a plug for seven miles, but this is where advisors are really helpful. To kind of avoid some of the stress where if it is finance or legal things that the executive team doesn't have as much familiarity with, having an advisor to manage that stress and eliminate noise and disparate information, that's essential. And just
1: help understand what that's a great point. Help understand what's market because you got people that do many, many of these a year can help you. Perhaps realize that something is making you super nervous. I think the switch scene may not be as big of a deal as, as you think at first.
2: Yeah, and uh appreciate the plug, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. So it's actually just a, a question I have. I said we weren't gonna spend a, a lot of time focusing on the whole COVID situation, just so I know a lot of a lot of parties have spent a lot of time talking about it, thinking about it, but post say things do transition back to normal. Do you think there's going to be a lasting impact on the deal process, on how people think about about deals, transactions, executing meetings? Do you think there will be a lasting impact or do you think things will largely return to normal once if we're able to get back to that state? Just curious. And I'll kick Blake,
1: it over to Blake. Yeah. I think Scott's what happened because I gave my example uh, when we were getting together about schools and snow days you know I grew up in Arkansas where when you put an ice cube out there it made it slippery and you called off school but I don't know if my daughter will grow up with snow days because they have learned to adapt and it maybe it it might become a school from home day but they don't have to call it off completely so that's my example that the, that the world is not, that, but that doesn't mean she's not gonna go back to a classroom, 100% she will. But that cla- the, the approach to that classroom and how they handle the adversity that they come into as a school system will be changed. I layer that onto the deal world as well when we are all of us on this call are probably spending way too much time on planes because they wanna be in person, blah, blah, blah. Well, now we've learned where and when it is crucial. Absolutely. We have done deals without seeing these people. I don't think that's the best way to do it, nor do I think that will continue. But have we learned to peel back a little bit how many of those need to be in person or the things that we might be able to do remotely? Absolutely. So it's going to be somewhere in between, but I think everybody's finding different levels of comfort with how they they will interact to get these deals done in a virtual nature. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add
3: is we all want to be able to interact. I think Blake and I are both itching to, to be travel when it's safe and really appropriate. But the, the new stakes are you have to be able to operate in this new state and virtually and comfortable with the vid chats and, and to articulate kind of uh, nuanced things like culture and, and growth and ambitions and explain like who people are without meeting them. These questions like aren't going away. We just have to get more creative on how we answer them through conversations, through meeting colleagues through having case studies or just shared experiences, the diligence isn't going away. We, we just have to, to kind of be able, I mean, be adapting to the adapting uh, circumstances.
2: Yeah, I've actually, I found a little bit that everyone has shifted in being more comfortable with, with video conferences. And I've actually found in a lot of deal processes that I've been involved in, that parties are more willing to do a video conference earlier on in the process than they ever would have been. And where before it was really, we were just focused around the this like big in-person meeting. It was the first time parties were meeting. Everything else was just dial in by phone and it wasn't as much having videos on, although we used video conference software. Now I found that parties are just more open to it. It's like more accepting. I think a lot of people are missing out on the social aspect. So I think that that's one example that I've absolutely seen, even though we're not back to a, a normal state yet, but I don't envision that going away. I think it actually makes it a little bit more personal sooner on in the in the process,
1: which I, I think is good, allows people to be a little bit more transparent. And York, that's what i say, Everyone will, definitely, you may find that it, it changes how you run a process. And yeah. those management meetings, you should take up so much of so many people's time, on planes, coordination, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you okay doing the front end, not in-person, you may be able to do two a day instead of one a day, because you don't have to coordinate so many schedules. It may, it may change for a, a more robust process when desired. Yeah, I think one thing
3: I've noticed over the past six months, while we've completed five transactions during this time, and some of them obviously started before COVID-19, several of them did start amidst all this chaos. And one strange benefit that's happened is, one of our goals when we're doing mergers it's to limit the negative disruptions. We don't want to break what's working. And without these travel restrictions, it's allowed these companies to maintain status quo. We're not pulling their leadership to attend our global data meetings or, or have to meet with their colleagues at all the exciting summits and, and events we used to have. That's really disruptive to have an immediate change and expectation to be available globally. Um, again, the expectation hasn't changed. We're just able to do it through video. And so in a lot of ways, that has been a small... Blessing in the skies is to allow for that same rapid integration. And in some ways, even faster because people are comfortable with the expectation of, okay, I'm going to hop on with a vid chat from somebody with, from Norway or Argentina or Singapore because we're not traveling there.
2: Yeah, no, that's a, a great point. So to jump into some of the questions, we just had one on if you want to rank challenges of M&A what is the most crucial one in a strategical view? What are your advices to handle that? So a little bit of a, a tough question, but any responses to that? So ranking challenges in, in an M&A process, maybe, maybe a couple specific things that you guys face that are hurdles or take up a lot of time or usually can be pain points in, in an M&A process.
3: I go first, Blake. The, the first one, especially when it is around exciting new growth areas, regardless of industry, it is just, you know, verifying these forecasts and what the vision is for growth and the supporting documentation for that. Sometimes the companies we're looking at, they've been in business less than two or three years. And so that use historical projections doesn't really work because that scale hasn't been there. And to count on industry growth and the rising tide kind of narrative, it is pretty broad still because if it's an undefined space or a growing platform or a new sector, there isn't really any precedent. And so for us to make sure we have a strong understanding of this industry, what we believe the, the growth potential to be, what we see maybe in our own business, any other more, I think, reputable or quantifiable details to give us a greater confidence in their projections. Because again, sometimes these, these entrepreneurs we're meeting with, we're meeting with them because we don't have an opinion or, or a background in this. And so for us to verify what we're asking these experts when we lack an expertise, that's a particular challenge I see in a lot of these growth platforms and new industries. Yep,
1: that's certainly up there. And I think, Scott, you, you mentioned that you guys use earnouts, used earnouts. I mean, it's pretty prevalent in the services businesses and MA ecosystem. I think that to me personally, and there's many, but that's the most challenging because things change and nobody's trying to. Everyone goes in with the best intentions, but businesses change, and there's no one out there that can say at the end of any given year, they knew exactly what was going to happen and all the, all the things, not just from a P&L perspective, but in the strategic needs and where you allocate capital and where you invest, so on and so forth, who gets hired, who leaves unexpectedly. All of those have impacts on earnout metrics. Tying it to a PL and l metric is to me the most simple, but also one of the most challenging because all of those things that I just mentioned have the biggest impact on those. And that's where disputes come into play. And there's different point of views. I think trying to find, and this goes to the challenge part, trying to find earnout metrics that are indisputable to the growth of the business. What is really driving that revenue? Can I take it away from a PL metric and put it into something that is the cause of that PL metric and that becomes less disputable and less variable in what causes change to that metric? If you start to figure those out, you can take that challenge away. And I would also like for you to call me quickly if you do. <laughs>
2: yeah no that's a, that's a, a great point. So just just going through a couple couple more of these questions while we still have some time. How do you plan for when the right time to look at something through the lens of an acquisition versus building organically? I'm sure that's uh, always a always up for conversation of whether we should just look internally. Can we do we have the teams and the resources and capabilities to do it in-house? would it be cheaper you know to do it, do it in-house rather than having to go out and, and acquire a group that maybe has high valuation expectations but but how do you think about that that balance of organic versus actually seeking MA? go yeah, for it right
1: Look, for us it's in every it's a part of every equation right because as i said we are we're buying for new or different products or offerings or services or a channel so all of those things with the scale that Cognizant has, we could, we could manufacture organically. It comes down to speed mostly. I mean, there's a the cost, but acquisitions are expensive as well. So really it comes down to speed. And is that market, are our competitors gonna move past us by the time we get there? So often it's a jump start to get to somewhere that we can then build upon. And that goes back to what I said at the beginning, we're buying these companies to grow them even faster. Like, Let us take that, jumpstart you up, it jumpstarts Cognizant, it grows faster. Is this a situation where that's the case? And that's how we approach it.
3: Yeah, very similar for us. And, and frankly, it's, it's one of the reasons I love my job because it gives me a reason to talk to my colleagues is to make sure that corp dev isn't existing in an echo chamber and just buying shiny companies out there. It's our responsibility to stay in touch with the active business units, the different leaders, the managing directors yep. of regions to make sure that we know what they're looking for and what makes sense. And also communicate this to the executives of S4 for me, and I'm sure Cognizant for Blake, because it's so hard to keep a pulse on, you know, the monthly changes in this, in this environment that, that each of these sectors is going through or what the new opportunities are arising or which companies are looking for partners or which ones have just gone under and have amazing staff. And so for us, a corp dev is actually, because I report up to Scott Spear, our chief growth officer, is really responsible for driving the strategic growth from an organic and inorganic perspective. We have a big old map, every service and capability we have in every region in the world. And within that map, there's different priority regions and capabilities for us to go after. And so like Blake said, speed is important. But for us, it, sometimes it is, well, where is there a big gaping blank in our service offering that we just need something like immediately, or we want to go deeper in this capacity.
1: Yeah, that clean line to the business unit, strategy person, or leader to help identify is crucial in that, that calculation Yeah, for, for a corp dev to have that partner.
3: And I think for us using our, this is where our 5C framework really helps where unless it is a capacity play where we just, it's already a core service and we just need more depth in this. Usually, we really do prioritize a new capability, something that, that if, if we could do maybe 50 70% of it on our own by hiring the right people, that's a little bit less disruptive to than merging with a whole other entity. So we really do prioritize that adjacent business. If you think of a Venn diagram, we want to have some overlap. We do things they don't do, and they're bringing something that that complements our existing business. So I think that's some of the, the broad strokes on how we have these conversations on a case-by-case basis for organic versus inorganic.
2: Makes a lot of sense. This will probably be the last question. We've got about five minutes. Have you guys, both organizations, S4, Cognizant, through conversations you're having, have you had to reset a lot of your M&A strategies through because of COVID coming out of the COVID situation? How has that impacted how you're thinking about, not necessarily from the execution standpoint, you don't have to maybe get into specifics of what you're looking at, but has that really changed and had a rapid impact on, hey, now business unit leaders are looking at X versus Y. Maybe if you just touch on that, how situations like COVID have a lasting impact or reset m strategies. Yeah, I go first. So for us, there's been unavoidable
3: changes just to, to how some products or industries have been performing or, or what their status is. But more or less, because S4's kind of thesis has been digital first, media content and data, it really hasn't had to alter because that's, I think, where a lot of these changes have been going to a more digital environment, to be more catered to social and content that's more specific for the platform you're looking at and actually understanding the collection and activation of the data from these platforms. So in some ways, it has accelerated and justified our initial thesis and there have absolutely been some areas or sectors that we were considering or, or were key to us maybe a year ago that have been deprioritized. But, but all in all, aside from, I guess, the process and, and, and how we go about our diligence and strategic planning, the plan's more or less still in place.
1: RESET's a firm word with regards to M&A because our corporate strategy, I mean, we're, we're shifting right? And the landscape shifts and what's in market shifts all the time. So you have to stay nimble. I would not say we are resetting anything. The growth in cloud is really helping drive business for Cognizant. It's driving a lot of our strategic long-term vision and where we want to be. And so from that perspective, it's, and I guess there's two parts to COVID. There's the, we're not together and does that change things and make things uneasy? Sure, it has for all of us, but five of the seven acquisitions we've done this year have been at some stage of, of COVID, if not some of them completely with it. So it's not resetting that at all. It's just a macro push that we're getting from this, which will will drive us to do even more. And so I think that's where we are.
2: Well, appreciate both of your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. I think we got through. Most of the questions that parties ask, and we can follow up over email for for any others. But I think that's all we had planned for today. So appreciate everyone in the audience joining with us to to talk through some of the strategic aspects of and fit within the deal process. So that's all we have today. And thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Gar. Thanks, Scott. See you soon, man.
2: Great chat, and Blake and Garth.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business.